Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we will continue our discussion of the catechized life. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Winehill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. And Pastor Bestel, as we go ahead and continue our look at the catechized life, a series of catechetical lessons, last week you were setting up for us how we approach the catechism, how we get into the catechism, even before we get to the Ten Commandments, which is where Luther starts his small catechism, and of course also the large catechism then as well. And you laid out for us that our modern Western culture, we have a different cultural starting point than Luther did in his day and age. A lot of similarities there to be sure, and we even talked about how there are similarities throughout time. But at the same time, we also have to recognize the culture that we are in and make sure that we are getting them into the catechism so that they can still receive that rich treasure that the catechism has there for us. And so you began by walking us through Genesis 1 and 2, and you talked about how God created everything according to its kind, and it was good in his eyes, and you laid that out really well for us. And so then today, you had set up for us that you were going to talk about this separation syndrome, if you will. And in order to do that, I guess we have to talk about, well, how did we get into the mess that we're in now that we even need to approach the catechism if everything was created good and according to its kind? Pastor Bestel. That's exactly right. That's where we have to start is how come when our kids, when our confirmands, when our adult catechumens, when our people in the pew leave the quiet confines of the sanctuary and they go out into daily life and they just see a mess. And yet this is the world that God created. And so when they see this world of chaos out there, they wonder what happened. If this is the God or if this is the creation of the God who loves the world, then maybe this isn't a God that I necessarily want to believe in if this is the best that he can do. And so what happened? And that's a really important question for us as pastors and catechists to be able to help them see that Scripture itself testifies to this. It's not as if Scripture is a book that wants to paint a rosy picture and deny the reality of what's out there. It actually addresses and explains the reality of what happened. And so we can continue reading Genesis 1, 2, and now Genesis 3. And this is why it's so important in our previous conversation to establish that Genesis 1 and 2 are history, because if Genesis 1 and 2 are history, then so is Genesis 3. And Genesis 3 is this history that tells us what happened. I like to use an illustration, as you've mentioned, called the separation syndrome. 
And this illustration is just, it's an illustration. Pastors have their favorite illustrations. Certainly no one is condemned if they don't use it or they're not a better Christian if they do use it. But I certainly hope that folks take this illustration to heart because I think it really well lays out for everyone that you can actually view this world in a way that makes sense because the scriptures actually paint a picture of what the world is going to look like on account of the fall. And so it's a very helpful illustration in understanding the world and therefore being able to be quite level-headed regarding the fallen world out there. And so one of the things that I do with my confirmands or with adult catechumens is I say, all right, take your piece of paper that you've got on your desk and write a bunch of big problems that you see in the world. You know, list out 10, 15 real big problems. And, and they often list things like war, you know, murder in the streets, divorce, cancer, heart disease, uh, COVID, of course, nowadays, death, depression, confusion about sexual identity, simply a lack of knowledge and learning, unbelief, anger at God, questions of existence, all of these real big issues, uh, tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, drought, all of these big problems that we all know and experience in daily life. And then I say, okay, well now also what about some of the littler things that are out there, things that you might not think of as being big issues, but they still are grievances that we have. They're still annoying. They're still problems that we have in daily life. And we wonder, how come these problems exist if God really loves me or if God created the world? How come these little problems are out there? Things like fighting with siblings over uh, which video game to play uh, or allergies or sprained ankles or manageable life ailments. Uh, I actually have celiac disease, which really isn't a big deal as long as you don't eat gluten, and then you just live a normal life other than not being able to eat gluten. So these are very manageable things, but they still are ailments. They still are reminders that things aren't good in God's sight the way that it seems that Genesis 1 and 2 depict it. Uh, Other problems, fear of the dark, fear of bugs, ignorance, incompetence, Uh, Again, I think we've already mentioned depression, Uh, bee stings, invaders into your garden, right? You grow a garden every spring, and it seems like all we do is seem to attract the bugs that eat the vegetables before we can even enjoy them ourselves. Uh, uh, A poorly manicured lawn. Everything we look at out there and we say, boy, this is just not what I envision when I think of the world being a good place. And once we see all of those problems... And once we have a sample of life's problems, we can sort of actually draw a diagram that helps us to see that every one of life's problems, every single one, fits into one of five categories. And those categories are not coincidental. We'll show you where those categories come up in in just a minute. And so this diagram that you draw, and I will often draw this on the whiteboard, as you draw, uh, you know, man right in the middle, you draw yourself, a stick figure or whatever, right in the middle. And maybe you draw a line up to the word God, whether it's, you know, vertical line or 45 degree angle line, the word God. And on that line, I'll write the word theological, that we have this theological separation between man and God. And then I'll draw a line and maybe brackets above the man's head and write psychological, that there's a psychological separation between man and his own mind. Uh, And then next to the man, 
draw a woman, a stick figure woman, and, and write underneath them in brackets a, a sociological separation between man and his fellow man, man and, and his neighbor. Uh, and then certainly there's also a, another line maybe out to the right that uh, that you can draw on the other end of that line, a tree, or if you're good at artwork, which I'm not, you can draw a bunch of different animals and be reminded that man has also this inherent separation between himself and creation. And then lastly, just to the right of man, I draw a vertical line that extends from his head to his toe. Uh, and I remind them that there's also a physiological separation, that man knows all of the problems and ailments of the body. So here you've got these five categories, theological, psychological, sociological, ecological, and physiological. Man's understanding, man's knowledge of these realities is that he is separated from them. And I mentioned last week that Isaiah hints at this when he says, your sins have separated you from your God. And yet we see in this reality of the fall, this reality that sin doesn't just separate us from God, it separates us from everything. And it causes problems in every part of daily life. As I said, this diagram isn't coincidence. The scripture demonstrates this truth right in the context of and as a result of the fall. So you can take a look at Genesis chapter 3, and we can read through Genesis chapter 3, and you can see how, of course, the uh, human author Moses, the divine author, of course, the Holy Spirit, you can see how the picture is painted that these are the reality. These are the consequences of what happens because of the fall, because of sin. So if you'd like, we could just uh, read through Genesis 3 a little bit and point this out as we go. All right. So let's go ahead and read from Genesis 3 then. And we'll be using the English Standard Version as our translation on this, just in case you're wondering what translation I'm going to be using for this. But starting with Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Yeah, so if we, if I can jump in there, Sean, and we can make some comment on a couple of these lines at first. Notice that there's still good order that's being conveyed here in these first couple of verses. And it's not perhaps easy to see, but I think there are points worth making. One of them, and it might sound like it's sort of going down a rabbit hole, but I've always found it quite interesting that the woman is, never seems to be surprised that the serpent spoke to her. You know, you, you don't get any sort of an indication that she is shocked at all that the serpent would speak to her. And I wonder, and, and certainly this is not thus saith the Lord, the scriptures never say anything to this, but you almost wonder if it was part of the good creation that man could actually in some way communicate with animals. Uh, why does God have Adam name the animals if their names don't mean anything to them or for them? I don't know. Maybe it's just so that man 
you know, going out into posterity can know what the name of the animals are because Adam named them. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's the that's the case. But it's sort of an interesting thought. Uh, and I think some of our kids actually pick up on this in the confirmation classes. How come, you know, it almost sounds like a fairy tale. How come the woman starts talking to the serpent and doesn't even seem to notice that she's talking to a serpent? And you, you know, it's just a guess. It's an educated guess. It's not thus saith the Lord, but it's just an interesting thought. Is this an indication of God's good order and just how far the fall takes us that there is no communication between man and animal anymore? I don't know. That's just a uh, just a, a hypothesis. Uh, however, one that certainly I think shows good order is that the woman says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, if you go back to the earlier chapters where God actually gives the instruction and he gives it to Adam and the woman hasn't yet been created and God simply says to Adam that you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, he never says anything about not touching it. And so I think this shows wonderful good order that Adam, as the head of his household, is going to care for his household and say to the woman, you know what, we're not even going to touch it. So where did Eve get the idea of not touching the fruit unless Adam sort of extrapolated on this and said, we're not even going to touch it? Uh, And that's not sinful. It's simply him being protective of his family and saying, we're not even going to touch it. So I think here you've got a couple of hints from the very outset And yet, immediately, you also have the serpent coming in, tempting the woman with half-truths. Of course, he knew they weren't going to physically look like they were dead that day, but he also knew that that day they would spiritually die as soon as they ate of the fruit. But this is how the serpent is always tempting, always with a bunch of half-truths, always saying, you shall be like God. And sadly, this is what man, ever since the fall, has succumbed to, is this desire, this idolatry of the self to be like God. And that sort of spirals, obviously, as we go through these next verses. Real quick, before we get to the next verses, I wonder your thoughts on this, Pastor Bestel. First, I think that's an interesting idea. I don't know if I ever considered that there was some sort of communication between man and beast and things like that before the fall. Uh, I I believe it's Martin Luther in his uh, Genesis commentary kind of makes the relation to just the general peace that there is because sin had not yet corrupted the world. And he, mm-hmm. he makes a relation to revelation, you know, how in the new creation we'll be able to lie down at peace with the creation again and so forth. And so it's not startling because without sin, what startles you? I don't know. That's just kind of an interesting thought for me again, too. Again, not thus saith the Lord necessarily, but just an interesting thought. But then also the idea of woman adding there, what would your thoughts be on, is this maybe already that Eve is not, uh, the word of God is not sufficient for her, that she's adding to it because she's already begun that trek down to, you know, we need something more than just what God's word has given to us. I've heard that idea thrown out there as well. What are your thoughts on that? I think it could be. Uh, I probably would take a cautionary note toward that in saying that if she's already adding to it, then in a sense, sin has already occurred. That we don't add to the word of God unless we are already in sin. So I tend to think that, you know, it could be 
And I think that it's a, a certainly a hypothesis, just sort of like the previous one we talked about. Eh, you know, maybe you sort of shrug your shoulders and say, maybe that's the case. I, I like it. And you're right. Luther does say that in the Genesis commentary, just about the idea of being at total peace. And therefore, there's no reason to be afraid of a serpent communicating with you. In the same way, Adam, whether it's Adam adding this to the woman in terms of uh, good order and saying, no, as your, as your instructor, as your teacher, as your head of household, I'm going to safeguard the family, or whether it's Eve doing it herself, I think we have to be careful as to say that she was already, because if she's already adding, then she's already, in a sense, sinning. If she's adding, if Adam is adding in terms of being faithful and saying we're going to defend each other from this, Again, maybe we're just getting down sort of a rationalistic idea of what counts and what doesn't count. But we do have to be careful with the assumptions and simply say, well, this is what the scriptures say, and we can make of it what we want. And yet I think these are pictures of good order still at this point, not necessarily pictures of a crumbling, fallen world because it hasn't happened yet. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of why I, I've gone the other route, actually, is that it's a part of the whole event of the fall mm-hmm. that she adds at this point. And so, you know, what's the actual point of the fall into sin? I think we're going to get into this in a couple of verses as well, too, that, uh, you know, generally we look at as the woman, but the man certainly has a role to play in there as well. I don't want to steal your thunder there. But uh, if we look at this as a whole event that she's already beginning the process or something. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Anyway, just wondered your thoughts on that as it relates to talking about the fall. But let's push forward and get a little more of this then. So I'm going to go ahead and take the next couple of verses. So picking up with chapter three of Genesis verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Yeah, so here are the two big verses, in a sense, that really are the central focus of the reality of sin entering the world. And, you know, when you see Satan at work, it always seems to be the same way. Here are the three temptations, good for food, delight to the eyes, desire to make one wise, not unlike at all the temptation that Christ himself knew at the hands of Satan in the, in the wilderness, right? That Satan said, hey, the stone can be bread, it can be good for food. And then he took him up on a high place and said, look at all of these nations of the world and I'll give them all to you if you bow down and worship me. And boy, that must have been pleasing to the eye to see all of those nations and to be tempted to think that they could all belong to him, which of course they already did. Uh, and then the third temptation that it was uh, desirable to make one wise, uh, just as Satan tempted Christ, that if he throw himself down, he can sort of trick God into making sure that the angels protect him because he promised that the uh, foot of the righteous will never be moved or harmed. And so in these, you see the devil constantly at work in the same way. It's a reminder for us as Christians and as sinners in this world that we are always going to be tempted according to the belly, right? What's good for our bodies. We're going to be tempted according to our eyes, and we're going to be tempted according to our mind and according to rationalism and, and reason. And of course, as we see, the woman falls into this, takes the fruit and eats it and gives it to her husband who was with her, and he eats as well. And if you actually take a look over, if the reader takes a look over at verse 16 or 17 right in there, God actually says to the man, 
because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And I think that this sort of shows the good order that had been there in terms of the family, uh, in terms of the household, in terms of proper roles and vocation within the household, and how this is why Adam is considered the one who is guilty, even though the woman is the one who is deceived. And the apostles speak to that reality that, yes, the woman is the one that was deceived. And yet, how often in Paul's writings, whether it be Romans 5 or in 1 Corinthians 15, does Adam take the blame? Because Adam, as head of household, as the one who's responsible for the good order of what God has established in his creation for the benefit of the family, Adam is the one who lets down his guard, who says to the woman, you go ahead and be in charge. And so can the woman really take the blame for what Adam himself allowed to happen? He was standing right there with her. He wasn't out somewhere doing some manly thing somewhere. He was right there with her, and he watched her go against God's will, and he delighted in it as well. And so he takes the blame. And now, as we get into the following verses, now we really start to see the domino effect of what has happened because of sin. So let's go ahead and take some of those following verses, picking up with verse 8 here of chapter 3 in Genesis. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? All right, so in these first two, notice here is the theological separation that we often think, uh, and I think a lot of Christian church bodies sort of teach it this way too, that in a sense, because of our sin, God has distanced himself from man. And yet the reality is that man distances himself from God. And God is the one who has to come find man because sinful man wants nothing to do with God because he is ashamed, he's afraid, he's whatever. And here you see that uh, it says in verse 8, that when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. This is terribly consequential for a right teaching of what it means to be at odds with God and to be separated from God. You're not separated from God because he doesn't love you, but rather the sinner is separated from God because the sinner, in idolizing the self, seeks to hide his sin from the God who loves him, rather than allowing the God who loves him to deal with the mess. We are called to repentance not simply because God is an angry, wrathful judge who wants to condemn us, but rather we are called to repentance because God knows he's the only one who can fix it, and he wants to fix it. And yet Adam and the woman, because of this theological separation, man separating himself from God, they immediately run away and try to hide from God. And now this gets right back to some of these issues that you see, some of these issues that we see in the problems of our world out there, Uh, the issues of unbelief anger at God, questions of God's existence. It comes because man has tried to hide himself from God, not because God has tried to hide himself from man. We don't need to accept Jesus into our heart or give him permission to be our God. He's already our God, and he desires to not only save us and redeem us, but to care for us and nurture us and sanctify us unto life everlasting. But rather, the problem is that man is the one who's always running and hiding from God. And therefore, God is the one who has to come and find him, call him to repentance, and bring him back to the joys of unity with God. Picking up verse 10 then, and he, that being Adam, 
said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, that being God, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So notice what Adam's very first words are here. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. There's the psychological separation, right? Man's mind is broken because of sin. Adam was never afraid before the fall. At the very last verse of chapter two, it says that the man and the woman were naked and basically they didn't care. What's there to be ashamed of? What's there to be afraid of? Uh, As you said earlier regarding the woman and the serpent, there's peace and there's this calm because of perfection, because of good order. All of a sudden now man says, I'm afraid. And he mentions to God that he's naked. Now, this is an interesting one because the psyche, the issues of the psyche are things that we often assume in our day of, you know, the age of the enlightenment. The psyche is the one thing that people are never willing to admit is wrong. And, you know, it's one of the parts of the fall that is not only is it first in a sense, other than the theological separation, but just the, the consequences are so amazingly ever present. Uh, you think of some of these issues of the fall. And some of these issues that affect the psyche, fear and depression. In fact, the whole sexual revolution issue, the whole issue with transgenderism today of someone looking in the mirror and looking at themselves and saying, I am not pleased with what I see in the mirror. There's something wrong with my body. I need to fix my body. The body is not the problem. The body has always been bluntly honest with us, right? The body tells us you're getting older. Uh, The body tells us you're getting heavier. Uh, The body tells us you're losing your hair. The body tells us you're getting grayer. Whatever it is, the body is very honest about the consequences of the fall. It's the mind that is dishonest. It's the mind that is always trying to play games with us, if you will. And so it's amazing to see that the very first issue, and this is a very helpful point. I've actually had opportunity to counsel people who've wrestled or offer pastoral care for people who've wrestled with transgenderism. And one of the things I pointed out to them is The very first thing Adam wrestles with is the exact same thing that you are wrestling with, uh, which is, do I trust the mind or do I trust the body? And Adam decided to trust a fallen mind and therefore be ashamed of his body. And so it's a dead giveaway, of course. Of course, God knows everything. But in a sense, it's a dead giveaway. He paints himself into a corner in admitting that he now realizes he's naked and he's ashamed of it. And so here you see a wonderful example of just how immediate is the consequence of sin upon the mind of man. Just excellent points there. I think this also speaks to what you've given this term of that separation syndrome where we begin to see that play out really quite starkly in our earthly experience here, as you gave that great example of even where you can apply pastoral care. And I think we'll really see how this plays out then when we get into the commandments. And we're going to continue picking this up and laying this out on the other side of the break. We need to take a separation here for a little quick break, uh, (laughs) but uh, we'll come back to continue uh, laying out here the separation syndrome and walking through Genesis 3 as we get into the commandments. So that's Pastor Mark Vestal. I'm Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. (laughs) 
Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Brady Finneran of Thy Strong Word, and I'm excited to announce a new series in the Old Testament with First and Second Kings. Join us as we will see how the Lord worked through the kings of Israel and Judah. Join us to be renewed and refreshed by God's Word and to be pointed to our resurrected Lord Jesus every weekday from 11 to noon, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters as our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel, continues to walk us through what he's calling the separation syndrome and laying out for us that idea as we see it play out in Genesis chapter 3 of the brokenness, the, the fallen sinful world that we live in. And you've laid out for us, Pastor Bestel, both the theological separation and the psychological separation. And the next one that you had talked about was the sociological, and that's where we're going to get to next. In terms of continuing to read here from Genesis 3, I'm going to go ahead and back us up a verse and start with verse 11 to get us into verse 12 as we continue to push forward here. So this is uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 11 from the English Standard Version. And he, that is God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. All right. So here, hopefully the listener and the reader can now see where these separations are starting to pop up. That obviously Adam does not want to take the blame. He's going to pass it to the woman. And he's going to say, the woman that you put here with me, God, she is to blame. So he blames the woman. He blames God. He's going to blame anybody except himself. And it's sort of interesting to see how God even corners him on this, sort of like when parents come home from running errands or whatever, and there's a broken lamp in the living room, and they say, what happened? And then they start asking follow-up questions, and the follow-up questions get simpler and simpler and simpler and paint them right into a corner that it's just yes or no. And yet Adam refuses to repent. He refuses, and he, and he blames it on the woman. And so here you've got sociological separation and we've seen it ever since. And notice what it is. Adam is the very first victimization person in the whole world, right? All he wants to do is be the victim. And he says, look, you put somebody here with me that made things go bad. I'm the victim. And that's exactly what we're doing. All of these thousands of years later, we're still always into victimhood. We still always want to blame everybody else. I'm the only one who's good. I'm the one who's, the, uh, who's got the short end of the stick. Everybody else has it better than me. And now they're harming me. God, uh, you're to blame. The woman's to blame. The society's to blame. Everybody's to blame except me. I'm the only one who's righteous. I'm the only one who has no sin. And so this sociological separation is, again, another massive reminder of what life in the world is like out there, that everyone's constantly blaming everyone else because no one wants to take the blame because everyone thinks that they're perfect and they're only sinners or they're only falling short because someone else is causing them to fall short. And so this sociological separation, once we learn this and once we see this tied in with the psychological separation, the theological separation, man, you can look at the world out there and you can say, yep, it's happening all over the place. It's happened since the dawn of time. Why should I expect any different today? 
Now, at this point, Sean, I should mention that we should probably jump over to verse 17. There's a gap now in the sequence. The reader might know what Genesis 3.15 is all about. We're going to sort of put a pause on that, and we'll come back to that eventually as God's uh, answer and solution to all of this. But in this gap that we have now, I tend to think that this gap also reminds us, and and we'll get back to this at a later time, that there's a sequence and sort of an intended timeline and nature, if you will, to the sequence of these events and how they unfold in Genesis 3, because I think we also see a very similar sequence of events or sequence of solutions in God's answer to all of this and bringing these separation syndrome back into unity. And so we'll save that for a later time, but that means we can jump over now to verse 17 and pick up there with the ecological and physiological separations. All right, so we'll jump over that gap and come back to it. But picking up with verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. All right, so... Here you have, as we're now looking for it almost in this exercise, here you have a very clear description from God of what the consequence of sin does. That here in these uh, these verses, you see God even say to Adam, this is just the reality now. You know, I, I tend to wonder whether or not God is actually trying to claim that these are punishments or if he's simply laying out for them, well, This is what life in a fallen world is going to be like. There's a difference between punishment and consequence. Uh, Punishment that atones versus a consequence that simply is because that's the result of one's actions. So can someone be punished without atoning? I suppose they could be. And in that sense, maybe God is explaining to them, here's the punishment, but not in a sense that you are paying for or you are atoning for the problems that you have caused. It's just now the reality. And the reality is there's going to be separation between you, man, and the very ground that you were supposed to tend, the very work that you were supposed to do. And remember, work is a good thing. Uh, Work is a godly thing. Work is part of that original creation that God looked at and said, it is very good. It is good for man to work. On the other hand, toil is a result of sin. When work becomes toil, it's a reminder for us that it's only toil because of sin, that I could work a 10-hour day, a 12-hour day, and in perfection, I wouldn't miss a beat. But it becomes toil because of sin. Everything that man touches because of sin, every, everything that he experiences because of sin becomes problematic. It's sort of like that old fictitious character, King Midas. Everything that he touches turns to gold, and that actually becomes a problem for him. And yet, for Adam, it doesn't turn to gold. Everything that he touches turns to rot and decay, because that's what sin does. And now, again, you can start to see the problems of the world that we have out there in our society. Uh, You can start to understand why when you plant a garden in your backyard or you have a well-manicured lawn one day and then all of a sudden, you know, a couple weeks of drought or scorching heat and the lawn doesn't look so good. This isn't God's fault. This is the consequence of life in a broken world. So here again, ecological separation because of the great problem, which is sin. 
I like how you've highlighted there that it's a consequence. I think, at least for myself, that's something I like to highlight when we get into the catechism in terms of the Ten Commandments, that there are consequences for breaking the commandments and so forth. I think that's a strong connection here as we as we talk about this. And it is important to highlight because when we think of punishment, you know, using your manicured lawn, right? Or or my garden. My garden is overcoming with weeds again. But I have spent time out there pulling weeds, right? But they just keep coming back. And so it's not like I'm being punished for not doing the task of caring for it, right? It just means that this is the consequence of living in a sin-broken world. Right. And so, yeah, I think that's an important point. Very good. Very good. And so then as we finish off then the separation syndrome, we still have to find that one that everyone is probably most afraid of, which is the physiological separation. Absolutely. So let's pick that up with verse 19 here. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There it is. It's uh, it's right in our face, and we can't deny it. And yet, let's remind ourselves, and this is an important point, physical death is not the great enemy. It's the last enemy. St. Paul talks about it being the last enemy to be destroyed. But it's not the great enemy. Everyone is so afraid of physical death. Everyone is so afraid of physical suffering that sadly, they're actually willing to give up sometimes on doctrine if they think that it means that they will have a better life now, a a better physical life now. Uh, You know, I can't go to church because I got to go to the gym or whatever the case might be. Or sometimes I hear people say that, you know, the gym is my sanctuary or the gym is my church. As if physical suffering is the here all end all of existence. And that's not the issue at all. The physical suffering and and even physical death is simply one of the five separations. This is very, in a weird way, it's actually very comforting for the Christian that we can face physical suffering. We can face physical death because as long as God has the answer to the greater enemy, then this consequence too will finally be destroyed. It will finally be undone. God will resolve it. And so this gives us great confidence and great calm. And and that's really what the whole point of the separation syndrome illustration is to do for the Christian. It's to help the Christian, whether it be, again, an adult catechumen or a confirmand or just a lifelong Christian who just needs the review. It's to help us see that we can make sense of this world and we can see it through the lens of almost, if you will, the picture of bifocals. Maybe we can look at the world through the lens of creation, and then we can look at the world through the lens of the fall. And just as you wear bifocals to see, you know, nearsighted and farsighted or however those things work, so also you look at what's out there in front of you and you can say, well, I see parts of it that remind me that this is God's creation. And yet I see other parts of it that remind me of sin and the fall. And so the separation syndrome is very helpful in retaining this little illustration to say, I can make sense of this world and physical death. I don't have to be afraid of it because just like all of the other separations out there, if I'm united to God in Christ Jesus, then the other separations eventually will all fall by the wayside and I will know nothing but unity with God and joy in Christ Jesus. So, Pastor Bessel, if these separations are all out there, how are they addressed then? 
It's a great question because people inherently and instinctively know that this is happening out there. Even if they don't know how to explain it, they see it, they know the problems of it. And I don't mean Christians necessarily. All people know that this is the reality of the broken world out there. And so they do try to address address these issues. And they've got a whole bunch of solutions for these issues. And some of them are very noble. So if we can just real quickly go through these, think of the different solutions for each of the separations that man has tried to come up with. The theological separation, many, many man-made religions out there, uh, redefining the Bible to fit human reason, writing man-made holy books, trying desperately to get back to God, 10 steps to a better you, right? All of these different self-help interpretations of how we can supposedly get back to God. When all of those fail, again, part of the theological separation, atheism is tried as the solution. Just to say, you know what? I'm bitter because I'm despondent because none of my answers have worked. And therefore, I'm just going to believe that there is no God. And so interestingly, atheism is one of man's attempted solutions, right? Not all of these solutions are useful, but you can see where all of them are, quote unquote, well-intended man trying to deal with what he knows is problematic. Think of the next one, psychological. We've got psychiatrists, we've got depression medication, we've got good luck charms, uh, even things like nightlights, music. You know, have folks thought of that before, that music is, is man's attempted solution to cheer us up. Pets, just this past year, my family and I got a puppy and pets are a great joy. And yet, why do they bring us Uh, Or why do we get them? We get them because we think they will bring us cheer, bring us companionship because of feelings of isolation or loneliness. I guess this past year with the pandemic and everybody being locked in, people were buying pets left and right because they were trying to come up with a solution to the immediate problem. Uh, It's also, again, it's sort of funny, though, that considering how perfect everyone assumes their mind is. It's amazing how many aids and helps we have to try and comfort the mind and to try and calm the mind. Again, this is probably the big downfall of the whole Age of Enlightenment. It assumes that the mind is trustworthy. And yet we look in the world out there and we see solution after solution after solution after solution to try and bring calm and resolution to a troubled mind. The sexual issues of our day are really psychological. We've already sort of hinted at that. And so the world trying to affirm the goodness of the psyche redefines everything so as not to have to admit the problem. Uh, Redefinitions of marriage, redefinitions of family. They're a rational, fallen reason that is a futile attempt to address what it knows is problematic, at least to the psyche. So theological separation, man has his attempted solutions. Psychological separation, man has his attempted solutions. You can see where some of the solutions are good and useful. Some of the solutions, not so good, not so useful. Uh, Sociological. Uh, Oh, and I should also say issues of psychological separation. That's not just issues of fear or depression, but even issues of recognizing the limited nature of the mind. We have school teachers. We have books. We have Google search right? All of these things that help a mind that we have to admit is limited in its capabilities, more limited than it certainly was before the fall. 
sociological separations. We've got militaries. We've got police. We've got marriage counselors. We've got video games with four controllers. Remember back when we were kids, Pastor Smith, I don't know if you were into video games. I played the Atari when I was little, played the Nintendo. And I still remember when some of the games were only one player. And then, wow, it was great that they were two player because you were always fighting over who got the remote. And now it's four players or now you can play online all because they're trying to address issues of sociological separation. Uh, we've got social media, of course. Everyone knows about that. Um, ecologically, we've got firefighters. We've got lawn chemicals. We've got gardening tools, bee traps, bug repellent, sunblock. We've got proper trash and recycling pickup, which is another reminder. You know, sometimes things are good and noble unless they're taken a little bit too far. Lutherans should be stewards of God's creation. Common sense recycling is a good thing. But be careful that the solution doesn't suddenly become an idolization of that solution, as if if we follow the tenets of sort of extreme environmentalism, we can somehow save Mother Earth as if Mother Earth is the deity we're supposed to be worshiping, or as if we in our own capabilities have the ability to control God's creation more than he does. So there's a good example where sometimes we can use things in a very useful way. We should all be environmentally aware, if you will, and be good stewards of God's creation. But we have to have a fine balancing act because we do live in a broken world. And, and we do have to take all things within a good measure of you know, reasonable use. Because the scriptures say this world too is passing away. There's nothing that we can do to stop it from passing away because God has promised it's going to pass away. Uh, and yet it's on God's timing, not on our timing. Finally, psychological separation. What are some of man's intended solutions? Uh, uh, I'm sorry, not psychological, uh, physiological, vaccines, medical treatments, doctors, dentists, electric toothbrush, nurses, chiropractors, uh, my gluten-free diet that my wife cooks for me, exercise. These are good, useful, noble attempts but here's the point in all of these, because you, you rightly asked, well, what is the solution? Where do we find the solution? I lay all of these out so that everyone can look at the world out there and they can say, yes, the five separations are all out there because of sin. Man is doing his best to address all of these, but it's sort of like playing that arcade game, Whack-A-Mole, right, where you're just whacking away, trying to hit that mole. And every time you think you've hit it, it pops up somewhere else. And that's exactly the frustration man feels in trying to deal with the fallen world out there. He's trying to apply a solution. He thinks, great, I've applied a solution. Now another problem pops up somewhere else. Because in all of these things, he's not able to deal with the root problem. And yet all of these things show just how deep and just how dire the root problem is. Sin is is that deep of an issue. And we can't solve it because we are part of the problem. Think of what the scriptures say. Through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And though we'll address this later, if sin is that big of an issue, now consider how comforting it is to hear these words. I forgive you your sin. See, children need to be taught how big of an issue sin is for daily life. Because once they learn the depth of sin, they appreciate the need for it to be addressed. And just how big of an issue is sin? 
perhaps a final look here in Genesis uh, in the early chapters would be to also consider, before we get into the gospel, would also be to consider the difference between how it says that Adam is created. In Genesis 1, it says that Adam is created in God's likeness and in God's image. And then if the reader was to flip over to Genesis chapter 5, after the fall, it says that Adam's son, Seth, was born in Adam's likeness. No longer God's likeness. No longer God's image. It is not correct to say that we are all by nature children of God, right? That's sort of the big saying out there in society nowadays, oh, we're all God's children. That's not true. We are all God's creation, but we are not all God's children as if we still retain the likeness of God or the image of God. We lost it in the fall. That's how deep sin is. And that's why it is not something that we can simply slap band-aids on and say that we fixed it. And once we understand just how deep sin is, then we can understand and approach the Ten Commandments more correctly. Sin is most specifically defined as not having the image of God. And no matter how well I try to keep the Ten Commandments, I'm still not going to be able to save myself because I still by my nature, don't have that image of God. And so the Ten Commandments are not there to say, here's how you save yourself. The Ten Commandments are there to show you how deep sin is in daily life, that you might be driven to say, I need a Savior. I can't do this. I can't even be part of the solution because sin is just too big, too big of an issue for me. I think this is fantastic of highlighting you know, what you said there of our ways of trying to get back to God. And there's so many connections there to make too. Within Genesis, as you were talking there, you think of even some of the subsequent stories that come in Genesis, Cain, right? And him trying to offer a sacrifice by his own hands, mm-hmm. you know, that's not found worthy, right? And then the increasing wickedness and indulgence of the lusts, uh, especially the flesh that led to the flood and then the Tower of Babel and everything. It's all these things trying to get back to God. And yet even in there as well, too, that there is a distinction made right with the birth of Seth between the children of men and the children of God. And so begin to see why Luther could lecture for years and years and years on Genesis as he did. <laughs> right. But uh, so all of that's foundational for understanding, especially, you know, again, even as Luther lectured on it for for many years and so forth. It does help us get into what he writes then in the small catechism in starting with the Ten Commandments. And so as we get nearer to that and get to the Ten Commandments, so you talked about the depth of sin, and that's highlighted on all those things that happen in Genesis. But how are the Ten Commandments then more thoroughly understood for us in studying the depth of our sin? Right. That's an important question, because when Luther writes the Ten Commandments, again, I think uh, his cultural context is a little bit different than ours, in which he could probably go out into the street and say, are you a sinner? And the average person would say, yes. Uh, They at least understood that sin was probably deeper than simply one bad thing that I did 10 years ago. But original sin 
is something that we don't understand. Oh, how would you say it? Well, I mean, Lutherans understand it, but the world doesn't think in terms of original sin anymore. The world sort of thinks that when you're born, you're born good, you're born perfect, or you're born neutral, and you have to make a decision for good or for bad. And so the Ten Commandments don't touch on original sins, though I think you could make the argument that really the first commandment is a really good reminder of original sin. But people may mistakenly think that the commandments are given as the 10 steps to achieve salvation or the 10 steps to a better you because they think that you have the ability in and of yourself to make that correction. But again, that's not so. And so to explain the depth of sin for people helps them appreciate the depth of God's love and mercy in Christ Jesus. Original sin, the issue of the image problem, not in God's likeness anymore, but now we're in Adam's likeness. You know, you can look at the passages like Psalm 51. Uh, Psalm 51 is, in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 5, that by one man's sin entered the world, death through sin. 1 Corinthians 15, that in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So original sin reminds us, uh, and the concept of original sin reminds us that sin is not just what I do. Sin is who I am by nature of the fall, not by God's creation. We got to look through the two bifocals here. By God's creation, I'm a creation of God. But as one who is now a child of Adam, by that nature, I'm a child of the fall, and therefore sin is in a sense what I am. St. Paul says this when he says that we were by nature children of God's wrath in Ephesians chapter 2. And he's not saying there that God created us that way but rather that as we look through all of history through the lens of the fall, we have to admit that all people born into this world were born to Adam. And this obviously gets into why the incarnation of Christ by conception of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary is so important, because it keeps him out of the line of Adam, because anybody born in the line of Adam is born a sinner and is conceived a sinner. And so I am not a sinner because I sin. You cannot read the Ten Commandments and say, all right, they're just giving me a bunch of slaps on the wrist, and that will atone for everything. But rather, I sin because I am a sinner. It is theologically incorrect, as we've already mentioned, to say that we are not sinners, but we simply sin, or that we are God's children who simply do bad things. That's not correct. The whole world are children of Adam. That's really the one, in a sense, human race, right? Uh, the uh, racial issues of our day are sadly sort of misguided because they're surface level and they don't understand the deeper problem, which is that we all have the same inherent problem from conception, which is that we're children of Adam. And so if we're children of the fall and children of sin and children of darkness and children of death, then there's nothing that we can do to bring life. There's nothing we can do to achieve our own way out of this. And so that whole concept of original sin is so necessary to teach the children, the adult catechumen, to help them see, yes, yeah, sin is a huge problem. It's not something I can correct by my own efforts. Now, of course, from that original sin flows actual sin, and that's what actually brings us to the Ten Commandments, which are really a description of teaching us about actual sin, thought, word, deed. Sins against God, the first table of the commandments. Sins against my neighbor, the second table of the commandments. Uh, sins of commission, 
sins of omission. And what does that mean? Commission, those things that I've committed that I should not have done. Sins of omission, those things that I've omitted, that righteousness I've left out of the equation that I should have done. And typically, there are two sides of the same coin. The child that doesn't make his bed is committing the sin of disobeying his mother while omitting the righteousness of making the bed. And so you can actually see that, and this brings us right into the catechism, you can actually see that in Luther's meanings, that all the meanings of the commandments, with the exception of two, and maybe we have time for this next week, with the exception of two, all the meanings of the commandments talk about the sins of commission, the first phrase of the meaning, and then the sins of omission, the second phrase of the meaning. I think that will be a wonderful place to go ahead and pick up next week as We've had our couple episodes now setting up, getting us into the catechism, approaching the catechism. Fantastic work there by Pastor Mark Bastel, our catechist, and getting us into the catechism. But we will pick up next week then with our discussion of the Ten Commandments and getting into those and seeing how this all plays out as we continue forward then. So thank you, Pastor Mark Bestel, for being our catechist for this series. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. 